Uh, hope everyone's doing well. My name is Tyler. I'm on staff here at COA. Um, as far as scripture readings go in Genesis, that's probably the toughest so far. So good job, Sarah. Lots of uh, Hebrew names and a very long passage. So um, I know you studied last night and pronounced all of those correctly. Um, uh, if, if you're new, just want to extend my welcome as well. Uh, very glad you're here. We, we say this a lot, but totally understand that um, Christian or not, coming to a new church can be something that brings about a lot of anxiety. So glad you took that step and, and are with us this morning. Um, also want to throw my two cents in for the Life Explored interest, uh, lunch interest meeting after church today. Um, I think if you have any kind of inkling of maybe wanting to join in a course like this, I would just really encourage you to come and join this, this uh, lunch after church. It's going to be like 20 to 30 minutes max. You'll get a slice of pizza. Uh, you'll get a seltzer. Uh, we'll have some conversation, and you'll get a good idea of what the course is about. And it's, it's really for um, non-Christians that have questions about life and anything. And it's also for Christians that have questions about life and anything. So I think one of my favorite part about these courses in the past is seeing both the Christians and the non-Christians come in with kind of the same questions. Um, and it's disarming for both groups to be like, oh, like, other people have questions too, those that believe the same as me and those who don't believe the same as me. So um, it's, it's going to be a great time. Myself and Daniel Chu will be leading it um, over the course of the next six to eight weeks. It starts October 30th. So if you think you might want to come, just come to the lunch meeting and we'll, we'll have a good time. Um, so uh, I think uh, yesterday was kind of like, I don't know if you guys felt like this, yesterday felt like kind of the last nice Saturday before the darkness comes in, <laughs> right? The, the dark season, boo, yeah, I know. This, uh, I hate to break it to you, today the sun sets at 6 p.m., like on the dot, um, and it will not set beyond 6 p.m. until next year. So, great. Uh, but yesterday, uh, my family and I, we wanted to kind of celebrate uh, or do something nice. It's nice outside. It's, it's kind of this last nice day. It's like 70 and sunny. And so we went up to this fall festival in Maine. Um, and it's, it's, it was one of those days that so far, it's just like a picture-perfect day, right? Um, if you have little children or if you under, understand little children at all, um, our baby napped the whole way up, the car ride up, so starting off real strong. Um, we stopped at this rest stop on the way, which who thought I'd be here bragging about a rest stop, but like, it was like a, a, a cabin in the woods and you got out and it smelled like pine and it was just like, this is amazing. And on the way up to the festival, we stopped at this uh, lighthouse, Nubble Lighthouse in, in York, Maine, if you've ever been there. And it's beautiful, and um, my, my parents are actually in town too, and my mom's been wanting to do this for a really long time, seeing New England Lighthouse, and so it's cool to just see her enjoying the lighthouse, the, the waves, the ocean, the, the house across the way. It's just, it's just beautiful, right? Picture perfect. Everything's going wonderfully. It's 65, it's sunny. Uh, it's just going amazingly. Um, and then after seeing the lighthouse, we, we get into our car to drive to the festival, which is all of five minutes away, and... Um, we're like 30 seconds into the, the car ride, and I hear from the back seat for my daughter a, a, a burp and kind of a gag. And I look back in the, in the rearview mirrors just with enough time to see vomit coming out of, out of her mouth. I apologize. I'm going to talk about vomit a lot for the next few minutes. Um, and, and so, of course, we're like, oh my gosh, Addie, poor girl. Or her name's Addie. Uh, are you okay? Like, okay, it looks like you're okay. Like, there's not a lot on your clothes. Okay, I, th I think we're okay. Maybe... Maybe it's not that bad. I think it's not that bad. Okay, so we keep going. 30 seconds later, burp, gag. Look in the rearview mirror. Uh, two streams of vomit flying out her nose. And then two seconds later, just like projectile. Uh, and so we pull over and 
we pull over into this yard and it's this nice house and the people that live in the house are looking at us and I, I feel the pressure of like, why are you on our yard? Get off our yard. Like we feel that. Uh, we, we, we get her out of the car seat. We get the backpack out of the back. We're trying to wipe her down. Anyone that's holding her, like just vomit all over ourselves. And, but we get the situation under control, right? It's, it's clean. Uh, we clean up everything. The car seat, we put a blanket on it so she's not sitting in her own vomit. Maybe... I don't think it's that bad. Maybe it's not that bad. I think, okay, maybe it's some motion sickness, something else. Let's try to go to the fall festival. So we drive there and pull into the parking lot. And it's an extremely full parking lot. But right as we pull in, someone at one of the best spots is leaving. And, and if you know me, I'm an Enneagram 7, like the smallest of things pumps me up. And so I'm like, all right, the day's back on. We're back in business. <laughs> this great parking spot, like awesome. We, we pull in and walk to the festival. Um, and again, just like it's beautiful. Like the, there are these, um, these tents and these, these vendors with like stuff you're just going to waste your money on. Like we got coasters. We didn't even need coasters, but they're great coasters. Uh, you see the food tents in the back. You see um, there's live music. You can see the ocean in the background. We're walking around. Burp. Gag. She vomits. And, uh, and we're like, oh my gosh, okay. And so we, we clean up the situation again, but we're like, you know what? It only got on the stroller straps. It actually didn't get on her second outfit. So maybe it's not that bad. We can still hold her, right? The stroller's a mess. We can still hold her. Maybe it's not that bad. So I'm holding her 30 seconds later, burp, gag. Uh, the last m- mention of vomit I'll say is I'm just holding my nine-month-old daughter like this as she's just like on the ground. And so at this point, it's that bad. And so we head home, um, kind of cut the day a little short, and, um, you know, we, we, we think, okay, like, we still could have a decent afternoon, and, but we get home, and we take her out of the car seat, the, the, the vomit, which I said I wouldn't speak about anymore, seat through the car seat, on the seat belt, down to the base of the seat, onto the seat of the car. Um, we get upstairs, and Ashlyn, my wife, and I, we have this little mini conflict of, what's the priority, lunch or cleaning up the car seat? And I'm like, lunch, she's like, car seat. Uh, <laughs> And um, we realized, like, we chose a meal that required a lot of prep. And my parents are in town, too. And, like, uh, we're like, oh, my gosh, we haven't fed them in, like, hours and hours and hours. I just feel so bad. And so it just kind of keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and there's this football game on that we want to watch. And we're like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad. We can make the meal. We can just sit and enjoy the football game. But then the team lost that we, wanted to, that we wanted to win. Okay, well, there's this baseball game on tonight, this team that we're rooting for. We'll put it on. It's not that bad. The team goes into extra innings, loses, knocked out of the playoffs. Sorry, Mariners fans. Sorry, Sarah. And we get to the end of the day, and we lay our heads down. We're like, you know what? It was that bad the entire time. It's that bad. And so Genesis 4, the passage we just read, is much worse than puking babies. Right? I said all that kind of lightheartedly. I understand there are days that are 10, 20 times worse than that. But the conclusions we draw are the same. We think maybe... You know, the end of Genesis 3, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's not that bad. But then we read it, and it's that bad. And to catch you up, if you're you're new or you just need a reminder, Genesis 1 and 2, um, lay out this picture of God just creating everything we see. The stars, the planets, rivers, cats, dogs. And the the pinnacle of his creation is dogs. And the pinnacle of his creation is, is man and woman. Uh, He makes man and woman in his own image. They're the only part of creation that bears the very image of God. And they're the only part of creation that God created to relate with him in such a way that they could be in an active relationship. 
and work with him and walk with him and be with him. And then Genesis 3 comes along, which Blaine preached about last week, and things take a turn for the worse. Right, Adam and Eve do the one thing that, that God told them not to do. Um, and so um, they were deceived by a talking serpent, which we presume is Satan, and um, they did the one thing God told them not to do. And this leads to God pronouncing some pretty severe consequences for everyone involved. Right, Adam, Eve, the serpent. Um, and quite honestly, uh, these first three chapters, especially Genesis 3, just brings up a lot more questions than answers. In our story in Genesis 4, it confronts two of these questions. And, and I think actually um, a, a more helpful way to frame the questions is by saying rising tensions. It confronts two rising tensions. Namely, we sinned and we were banned from the garden. So just how bad is it? Just how bad is sin? And secondly, just how good is God? How faithful is God? And these are two themes that um, if you just kind of always keep those in the back of your mind as you're reading the book of Genesis, as you're really reading the entire Old Testament, um, they help clarify a lot of what's going on in Scripture. Right? So these are two plot lines that are headed in seemingly different directions. Right? The, the goodness of God, the perfection of God, the destructive sinfulness of mankind. What's the end goal of these things? Where do they head to? And is there any way that somehow this can be fixed? And our passage paints a clear picture that things are bad. Sin is very clearly bad, and it is far worse than we can imagine. And the passage right before ours, Genesis 3, shows um, the effects of sin vertically, namely that um, the way that God and humans relate to each other is now broken because we have sinned. And while there's nothing worse than that, our passage shows us the impacts of sin that are also profoundly, painfully horizontal, profoundly, painfully relational with each other. At the same time, though, it shows mostly how bad we are. It also presents the faithfulness of God. Right? And so in our text today, these two things are right in our face. The destructiveness of sin, the faithfulness of God. And so our main point, our main takeaway today is, is this. Your sin is far worse than you think, but God is far more faithful than you know. Your sin is far worse than you think, but your God is far more faithful than you know. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't consider yourself religious, my, my challenge for you is, well, not really challenge, just kind of like, like think and simmer on this. It doesn't take a, a Christian or someone overly religious to look around the world and see that things are not the way they should be. Right, whether it's uh, the minute details of your life just not going the way they should, or whether it's feeling like we're on the brink of World War III, or whether it's just another shooting in the news, it does not take someone religious to see things are bad. And so, again, if you're not a Christian, my, my thought I want to slide across the table is that the Bible represents this accurately. The Bible is not in disagreement with that idea. In fact, I, I would argue that it paints the clearest possible picture with the clearest possible explanation as to why things are the way they are. And so as, as you hear um, this, this passage, we work through this passage, just marinate on that. Just think about that. So again, your sin is far worse than you think, but God is far more faithful than you know. And here's how we're going to see that today. First, we're going to look at the destructiveness of sin in this passage. Right? How is it at work through humanity and the world? We're going to look at the first ever recorded murder and see um, how sin's working in that and how it works in our own lives. And then we're going to end on a brighter note. 
um, by looking at the faithfulness of God in the story and how that might encourage us in our sin and encourage us in reading such a deep, dark story. And how um, the, the majority of this chapter, most of the ink is spent describing the nastiness of sin. It's actually the faithfulness of God that is still in control. And so before we dive into that, just some preliminary comments. Um, this passage begins on a hopeful note, right? Genesis 3, God makes a promise. He says, um, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? Uh, it's, it's been known as the first gospel. It's just this idea that a, a child, an offspring of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent, will crush evil. And I think Adam and Eve, when they heard this, they, they probably had some sense, I'm just kind of guessing right now, they probably had some sense that this wasn't just someone literally killing a snake, right? They probably had some sense that this person was going to undo everything wrong that has been done. And so with the birth of Cain in verse one, there's probably a lot of great hope, right? Like, is, is Cain the one? Is this the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Ab and Eve are probably asking that question. And then uh, uh, more than that, um, he has a brother too, right? Eve gives birth to Abel. And so the first four verses of this story are somewhat status quo, somewhat innocent, right? Cain and Abel, uh, Cain's a farmer, Abel's a, a shepherd. And um, it seems as though they're, they're walking with God, right? They, they eventually come to um, give an offering to God. So it's clear at this point, okay, there's still some sort of, sort of worship happening, um, the way that God interacts with Cain, it still looks like God is in some way, shape, or form, though we don't relate to God the same way as we did in the garden, there's still some kind of interaction happening. And so the offering happens, right? Cain brings some fruits from the ground. Probably, you know, he's a farmer. It's probably, he probably got it at work, right? And Abel brings the firstborn of his flock, and God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. The text doesn't explicitly say why, but I think there are two things we can look to. Um, the, the passage does say that Abel brought his firstborn. And so essentially it paints this picture of Abel, um, just theorize with me a little bit. It's almost like he's reflecting on God and who he is and his goodness and what he does. And um, out of that, it compels him to bring his best, to offer God his best. Whereas the way it describes Cain's offering, it doesn't quite paint that picture. And I think the reason the text pointed out that the fact that Abel brought the firstborn was to prove that point. And the rest of scripture also adds another reason, right? Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into this as well. It says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And so very clearly God accepted Abel's offering because he'd offered it by faith. Now, what exactly does that mean? It's kind of confusing, right? Faith, well, the idea that, that God was who he says he was, he is who he says he is, and he's going to do who he's going to, what he says, he's going to do what he says. By Abel trusting in this, this compelled him to offer something to God by faith. It appears Cain did not have this disposition. In Cain's reaction to this, we see our first point, the destructiveness of sin. It begins to play out in humanity. It begins to answer the question, just, just how bad is it? And so in these first verses, we see sin in the human heart and, and sin in desires, which Bland talked a lot about that last week, so we're not going to cover that as much. encourage you to go back and listen. Um, but Cain begins to express anger and, and a little bit of jealousy, and it's kind of the first time that we see that from humans in the Bible. And uh, God's response to this is important, which we'll look at later, but the passage goes on to say that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, he rose up against his brother and killed him. So I think it's easy for us to look at a passage like this and say, yeah, but I, I, would, I would never. 
I would never do that, right? But it's interesting that step one to premeditated murder in this passage is anger. So pause for one second. We've all completed step one. I think it's showing us the destructive effects of sin left unchecked lead to unimaginably dark places. Not just in dramatic Bible stories that we believe are true and are the very word of God, but in our lives as well. Um, I, was, I was reading an article about the Enneagram, which is kind of like a glorified personality tool that we talk about a lot at COA. Um, and it was talking about like the end path of each Enneagram type if they fully lean into their desires and their unhealth. And all of them ended in like one of three scenarios, murder, becoming a sociopath, or taking their own life by suicide. And, and Paul, scripture itself supports this kind of point too. Romans 1, he says that people who continuously choose not to acknowledge God, that God gives them up to a debased mind. In other words, God gives them up to themselves. And where does it lead them? To do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. And he goes on and on and on. And so in other words, when people are free to lean into their sin, to lean into their sinful desires, it ends in envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. And as Christians, we believe we are safe in Christ, but I think we'd be uh, foolish to think that our sin is less destructive. Suez Lewis notes that one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark may be much the same in both. And so it might be easy to distance yourself from this story in Genesis 4, but according to Lewis, the anger you have towards your friend leaves the same mark on your soul as the anger that Cain had towards Abel. And if C.S. Lewis isn't enough, Jesus himself, he equates anger and murder in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, Jesus is exposing our hatred and anger as extremely serious. To borrow a phrase from another pastor, Jesus is exposing our spiritual homicide towards others. And so in the anger and jealousy of Cain, we see the destructiveness of sin. And um, another important part to consider in this story is the context in which this happens, the relational context in which this happens. Right, this, is, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's, it's obviously not just Cain, and the person he murders is obviously not someone random. Right? It's his brother. And this is a huge emphasis of the story. Right? You look at the verses that describe Cain murdering Abel. They use the word brother five times. It's trying to make a point. Hey, this was his brother. Maybe more grotesque. Think about the circumstances. Cain didn't have probably didn't have a sword, probably didn't have some you know, poison to give to Abel. He probably had three possibilities. At best, a rock. Somewhere in the middle, he just beats him to death. Worst case scenario, he chokes his own brother to death and sees the life leave his eyes. It's an extremely uncomfortable thought. Now, I don't have to explain too much that like, this, is, this is terrible. Right, think about the, the stories you see on the news of, of one person murders another and that's terrible and that's tragic. We have to lament that and be in sorrow over that. But then there are these occasionally these stories where it's like 
a father goes nuts and kills his family, right? Or kills his kids or a son kills a mother. And it feels worse, doesn't it? And why? It's not just because one person killed another, but it's because familiar, familial relationships were designed to be safe spaces. Familial relationships were designed to be a place that is safe for everyone involved, where children can be raised up and taught how to reflect the image of God to the world, where families together can work together, can walk together to do the things that God has called us to do. But sin entered in. And when Adam and Eve sinned, again, it didn't just break our relationship with God, it broke our relationship with each other. So it means everyone you know, everyone in this room, Everyone in this family, in some way, shape, or form, has a broken relationship with you, even the best relationships you have. And, and just think about how devastating that is, right? I, think about how devastating the story is and, and the context of what's happening in um, just the history of the world, right? The first recorded human-sibling relationship, the first ever people in the Bible to share the same blood, to have the same mother, the same father, ends in one murdering the other. So sin wreaks havoc in relationships. Sin wreaks havoc in family relationships. And we all have felt that to some extent, right? Some more than others. Whether it's an abusive father, uh, an absent mother, a sibling relationship that is just all give and no take. Or some of us just feeling the brokenness of the world and being like, this is just, it's not the way it should be. As Christians... I wish my, my next line was a little more encouraging for you. Um, it, it's helpful to remember this as you enter into new relationships and try to navigate existing ones. Right? To realize that to some extent, sin has tainted and will taint the relationships you're in. You need to look out for sin. And the thing is, rarely do we consider that in the context of relationships, right? When we hear um, God tell Cain that sin is crouching at the door, we hear that as sin is crouching at the door for me. Rarely do we hear that as sin is crouching at the door for us in the relationships we have with each other. And so I'm not saying expect the worst. I'm not saying pessimistically like brace yourself for the worst possible case scenario. But I'm saying be cognizant that when these things arise, you just be ready for them. And it allows you to give grace in a way that better reflects Christ. Not in a way that allows the other person to be emotionally or, or physically abusive or, uh, or in a way that forces you to stay in relationships that you shouldn't be in, but a way in which you have a particular lens that acknowledges the existence of sin in the world and the various relationships you're in. So again, we see in this passage that sin has moved beyond just being something that impacts God and humanity, humanity the vertical, but also each other, the horizontal. Last thing to consider as we look at sin in this passage before we move on to the faithfulness of God is, is how sin, the destructiveness of sin affects the world. And I know that's like super broad, um, but we see it in two ways that I want to point out in this passage. We see sin enter into the institutions that God has established, and then we see sin entering into culture. And there's certainly some overlap there. There's certainly some overlap in what we just talked about previously. But just a few comments about both those things before we move to our last point. Um, in the passage, verse 19, Lamech takes two wives. And now it might be easy for many people to just kind of say, see, see, the Old Testament is for polygamy, right? Or see, see, the Old Testament does not prohibit polygamy. The Old Testament does not say that you shouldn't have more than one spouse. 
But I think a, a closer reading shows that's not actually what the Old Testament is putting forward, and two reasons why. So I will openly acknowledge the fact that the text says that Lamech takes two wives does not mean it's calling it out as sin, but it seems to be stated in such a way that it's a deviation from God's intentions and designs in Genesis 1 and 2. And maybe more than that, maybe more than that is just some common sense that you look at how polygamy went in the rest of the Old Testament, it didn't go well. It went terribly for everyone. It's almost as if scripture was trying to describe scenarios that go against the way God designed things to be. And so sin enters into marriage, which we've seen already right in Adam and Eve, but now we see it in Lamech and his wives. And Lamech almost seems to have like a toxic masculinity, right? You look at his, his, his kind of poem, his statement to his wives, it's almost like he's saying that as um, a warning. Like, you better watch out. Don't cross me. I have killed someone. And maybe what's worse than that, his, his uttering to his wives, it's, it, he uses the phrase young man, but it, it's also accurately translated as young lad, which unfortunately means young boy or at best teenager. And so Lamech, he, he killed someone probably under the age of 18. And you can probably tell by the way these verses are written in your Bible that they read like a poem. Right? They're kind of bracketed off and, and, and smaller than, than the rest of the lines in, in Genesis 4 and um, a lot of commentators have noted that looking at the text surrounding it, that culture is developing. Right? A city's been built. People are building tents and herding livestock, and, and they're making tools, and they're playing instruments. Poetry is, is a form of culture as, as well. And so the, the first ever for sure recorded poem in scripture is about killing someone. Adam's Exclamation, exclamation in Genesis 2 about Eve isn't a poem by definition, but it feels poetic, but compare the two. Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, as he's eagerly anticipating and seeing and receiving and loving Eve. One page later, look how much we've deteriorated. How far humanity has fallen over the course of one page of the Bible. That, how, how far has humanity fallen over the course of these 20 verses, right? We, we start out with the murder of a sibling, which is terrible, but we end the chapter with no doubt that sin has tainted everything. The goodness of God, the destructiveness of sin are heading in completely opposite directions, it seems. It only continues to get worse. Hate to break it to you. In a few weeks, we'll have this weird, like, divinely caused flood because of sin. We'll see more murders. We'll see more broken family relationships. We will continue to see the destructiveness of sin expand, 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 expand. But again, though the destructiveness of sin takes up more ink in this passage, if you read it really closely, you still see that God is still in control. You still see that God's faithfulness is still intact and is still the thing driving the show. So to close, we're going to look briefly at that. And as I was kind of reading and writing this, I was like, I want to spend more time on like God's faithfulness than the nastiness of sin. But I kind of want to be true to like what the passage is saying. And it spends a lot more time talking about how dark sin is. And so um, we see God's faithfulness in the passage in two ways. First, we see it in his grace. And second, his justice. His grace and his justice. Look at verses six and seven with me again. 
This is after Cain offers the sacrifice and Abel offers the sacrifice. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You notice thus far, this is only the second time, kind of, that's when someone sins in the Bible, God responds with a question. Right, Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve's sin, he says, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree that I've told you not to eat from? And now why are you, why are you angry? Why are you sad? And we'll see in a minute, he responds to Cain's murder with questions too, right? Where is your brother? Tim Keller notes, if God asks you a question, he's trying to get you to understand your heart. And so if Tim Keller's right, which I think he is, God is responding to Cain's anger with a fatherly-like care. God is responding to Cain's sinful anger and sinful offering by pursuing him. And so we get the first glimpse of these two separate directions God's, uh, it's the second glimpse, I guess, because God also gave grace to Adam and Eve. The second glimpse of God's goodness and man's sinfulness, God's goodness comes over and meets man. We see God pursuing man in his sinfulness. It sort of plays out like a seasoned father who's trying to give good wisdom and advice to his, his son to shepherd him well, to give him guidance in a tough situation. And remember, Cain didn't physically kill Abel yet, but he did sin in his anger and his jealousy and in the way he offered his offering to God. So God had every right to condemn him if he wanted to. I think this text just proves God is slow to anger. Notice too, God asked Cain, why has his face fallen? Which, what that really kind of means is, why are you sad? Right? Sin wants to devour you but, and it wants to rule over you, but I don't want that. I want you to rule over sin. I don't want you to be distant. In Cain's sinful offering, God responds with grace as a caring father. In Cain's murder, he responds with grace too, which is crazy. Right? He has every reason not to. He has every reason to smite Cain then and there. But he promises to protect Cain by, by put, putting some kind of mark on him. We're not sure what that is but it's to protect him from people that would seek vengeance on him. And more than all of this, just like Genesis chapter three ends with a hint of promise and hope, so does this. God's grace is on display with the last part of the chapter. It seems God, it seems he has the right not to keep his promise to crush the head of the serpent. It seems he has the right to abandon humanity at this point, but he doesn't. Right, he quiets any doubt with the birth of Seth. We know from Luke chapter 3 that Seth is in the line of Jesus. Seth eventually leads to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3. He's the seed of Eve that crushes the head of the serpent. And so the birth of Seth was God being faithful to his promise, God extending his grace again. Last part, we also see the faithfulness of God in his justice in this passage. And again, it's two seemingly kind of opposite type of ideas, right? God's justice and God's grace. Part of God's response to Cain in verse 10, he says that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so God hears injustice has happened, right? It, it, it seems like there is some almost audible noise coming up to God and God hears that an injustice has happened and it almost seems like he appears and he comes down. He's like, what has happened? Injustice has happened. I'm here. I want to correct this. 
And I love that imagery. And it sounds kind of weird, right? The, the, the voice of blood crying up from the ground, but I love that imagery. And we hear it elsewhere in scripture too, Sodom and Gomorrah, where a lot of sin was happening against other people and, and just in general. Um, it, it talks about the injustices, the sin against innocent, uh, the, the, that crying out to God. And ultimately, this passage, just like every passage, it points to Christ, right? Because the, Christ, the, the blood of Christ points, cries out to God on our behalf. Hebrew 12 calls the blood of Christ one that speaks a better word than Abel. One pastor thinking about this noted that the blood of Abel cries for justice and vengeance, but the blood of Christ shouts forgiveness. And so these two seemingly opposite ideas, God's justice and God's grace, these two seemingly opposite paths of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and humanity's destructive sin and evil, they come together at the cross. They come together in the person of Christ. Who could have thought that the way God would fix uh, our destruction, our evil, our sinfulness, and, and reconcile with his goodness was to he himself comes down and takes on that very evil. On the cross, God's justice is fully on display while his grace is also fully offered. On the cross, the evilness of sin is fully on display the goodness of God is fully on display. Your sin is worse than you think. Just look to the cross. You'll see it. But God is more faithful than you know. Just look to the cross. You'll see it. So we're going to enter into a time of communion to remember just that. We do this every week as as a church family. Right, the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross, uh, shedding his blood and, and breaking his body. And in light of the text we just read today, let me challenge us. Some of us in this very room, we have hatred or anger or some very unreconciled relationship with someone else. My encouragement, my challenge is to sit in the presence of God and bring that to him. Whether it's you need to ask for forgiveness to God first and then go to the other person or whether it's uh, you need to work through your emotions about a wrong that's been done to you, that's my encouragement to you. And maybe, maybe if you feel so convicted about it, you don't take communion this week and you go fix that relationship. You go attempt to reconcile and then enjoy a celebration. You come back next week and you take communion again. This is one part of service we ask you not to partake in if, if you don't consider yourself a Christian. Um, if it, you can either stay in your seats or if it makes you feel more comfortable, you can still get up with, with everyone else and head out the hall and then just come right back in. Um, we have to go out those doors uh, because we can't have food or drink in here. Um, your sin is worse than you think, but God is more faithful than you know. Let's pray. Father God, we admittedly without you view sin and destruction and evil as the end of all things. But you, through this passage, show us that you are slowly, surely making a way, that you are being faithful. So God, open our eyes to that. Even when we always see is, is evil and sin in our own lives and the world around us, help us to trust in you. Help us to see that you are making things right, that you have made things new on the cross. God, help us to hope in you. You may pray and ask these things. Amen.